we have any Apple devotees in here? Okay, I need to qualify that. Not the fruit, the company. Okay, good. That's what I thought. Well, if you are an Apple devotee, you probably know the story of Steve Jobs, and I'll just tell you right now that if I say call him Jobs when I refer to him, it's just a habit from the Bible here, the book of Job, not the book of Job. But anyway, and I think I did maybe once in the previous service, even though I warned them, so that's okay. But Steve Jobs, early on in uh, Apple's development, and it was becoming clear that uh, Apple was going to be a force to reckon with in the world of technology, the young genius, though self-absorbed and uh, all that goes with that, that he was, decided it was time for his corporation to acquire a CEO, chief executive officer. And, of course, Steve Jobs was not used to uh, settling for much of anything and certainly wasn't going to settle for this important position in his new company. And so after doing a little bit of research, he discovered that the Pepsi-Cola company, which was a, a long, aged, you know, proven track record kind of corporation, had a pretty bright, uh, fairly young man itself at the helm there at CEO named John Scully. And so Steve Jobs approached Mr. Scully to become their CEO. But when he approached him, he didn't make promises of promotions or perks or bigger paychecks. Instead, what he said is now rather famous. And, and if you've seen the movie, jo uh, I almost said it, Jobs, Jobs um, it comes out in there. But that is a true thing. That wasn't Hollywood because I remember hearing it many, many years ago uh, in a business context when it happened. And what Steve Jobs said to John Scully was, do you want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life? Or do you want to come with me and change the world? Well, John Scully, in fact, took the bait and ended up becoming Apple's CEO. When Jesus saw the disciples out in their boats casting their nets, he said to them, Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And I doubt that the late Mr. Jobs got his idea for approaching John Scully from Jesus. But ever since that encounter with the fishermen, Jesus has been beckoning all who would pay him attention to come and follow him. And he would use them to turn the world right side up. We are barely into the second chapter of the Gospel of Mark. And the theme that Mark keeps pushing is twofold. The first is that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior, promised from the, all the way from the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and all the way through it to the very end in the book of Revelation. He, Jesus, is the one of whom the Bible is written, and all things in the Bible are about Him and are meant to explain Him. They are meant to clarify who He would be when He come, what He was coming to do, and who He would be when He came again. And we know this because Jesus tells us from his own lips in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 24 on the road to Emmaus. There were many versions of the Messiah preceding and at the time of Jesus' advent. We tend not to give 
too much thought to the reality that there were in fact many messiahs or people claiming to be the messiah leading up to and at the very time of Jesus' incarnation and even thereafter. But Mark knows And he will record later in this gospel, in chapter 13, a warning from Jesus himself, saying, if anyone says to you, behold, here's the Christ, or behold, he's there, do not believe him, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. So the issue of who and what the real Jesus would look like, and I don't mean his physical stature or the color of his hair or his facial features or anything like that, but I'm talking about who they would expect as this coming Messiah was as relevant to Mark's day, even after Jesus came on the scene as it is in our day today. Because the church, and I use that in the broadest sense today, the church has fallen and is falling prey daily, it seems, pointing people to all kinds of concocted or varied false Christs who fit their own personal, their own cultural, and their own immoral preferences. And if you don't realize This in our day today, you are going to have or you are having difficulty navigating the waters of our ever-declining culture. Let me give a few examples of what I'm talking about here. Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Oh, that's the prevalent buzz about today's culture. You will have difficulty navigating the waters of the diverse landscape of religions. For example, in Islam, they pay great respect and have deep reverence for Jesus the prophet. Mormons contend that they are Christian, although Jesus is the brother of Lucifer. And the Jehovah's Witnesses believe in a Jesus who is a small G God who is created by the big G God. If you don't realize how relevant this reality of false Christ is in our day, you will have difficulty navigating the perverse landscape of what I call pseudo-Christian denominations. Even here in our little town of Waterville, there are numerous churches who all believe in a Jesus of their own creation rather than the Jesus revealed by the scriptures of whom we are told in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Meaning what? Meaning Jesus does not change through the centuries. He doesn't change with geopolitical diversity of nations. Jesus doesn't change with culture. And Jesus doesn't and will not change with Supreme Court rulings. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the very next verse that follows that undergirds my assertion. What does it say? It says that in light of the unchangeability of Jesus' nature, verse 9, don't be carried away by varied and strange teachings. 
I've been, uh, at least when it was in the news, when they first started hearing oral arguments concerning homosexual marriage before the Supreme Court uh, just a few weeks ago, Anthony Kennedy, who is widely viewed by basically everybody to be the key crucial vote that will tip it one way or the other. Anthony Kennedy, when listening to arguments toward homosexual marriage, said, and I'm quoting from the Wall Street Journal, the definition of marriage has been with us for millennia, and it's very difficult for the court to say, oh, well, we know better. Quoting still, Kennedy's concern about redefining a millennia of marriage was not eased by the subsequent response of pro-LGBT attorney Mary Bonato, who stated that the issue of gay rights in America has been contested for over a century. Anthony Kennedy asked the next question, and he asked, You want us to throw away a millennia of marriage as the union of a man and a woman based on ten years of same-sex marriage? Quoting the article, Kennedy was not persuaded. Take heart. There is possibility. But Jesus Christ, who is fully God, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the logical connection that the inspired writer of Hebrews makes is don't be carried away in light of that by varied and strange teachings as we navigate through culture, through geopolitical considerations, through Supreme Court decisions, through personal preferences. And this is the very reason for our first two G's in what is our church, church's mission statement, to get them and ground them. Because unless the proper grounding is accomplished properly, we cannot hope to get them and ground them, now the rest of it, and grow them for good works unto God. Mark's first theme in his gospel is Jesus is the Messiah Savior. The second theme Mark is pushing is the need for every follower of Christ to join this Messiah Savior as part of his fleet of fishermen who will be willing to go out and troll the waters of humanity to snag or to hook or to net everyone they can, bringing them in to that saving relationship with Jesus because he is the one and the only one who can save anyone from an eternity in a very real place called hell where contrary to popular ex- popularly expressed belief, you won't have any friends there. We resume this morning in chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Jesus went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up, and he followed him. Without lifting the quill at this point, Mark continues right on through. And it happened that Jesus was reclining at the table in his house. Now, whose house? The pronouns here can get a little confusing, so we have to pay close attention to those. Jesus is in Levi's house. Levi the tax collector, not Levi the jeans maker. That would be a while later on. We know Levi, thank you. We know Levi better as Matthew. 
Verse 15, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Three times in these two short verses, Mark underscores who Jesus was keeping company with, and the repetition three times in these two verses isn't meant to be flattering. Jesus is hanging with tax gatherers, tax collectors, and sinners. If we pause here for a moment, and if we have read ahead just a few verses, this vignette then starts to come into focus. You see, the scribe's heartburn is over the fact that the Jewish rabbi is not simply stooping beneath himself or beneath the status of a rabbi to eat with people of lesser status. But rather by doing so, Jesus is committing sin himself in their view because Jesus is violating Jewish commandment. By eating with these obviously tainted individuals, Jesus, according to commandment, is likewise being tainted. He is being defiled according to Jewish ceremonial law. And that is a key, not the key, but it's a key to this current pericope continuing for the next several exchanges which follow. The scribes' inquiries, better their their complaints, are grounded in their theology, a theology which has been the bedrock of their personal and spiritual experience and practice for millennia. So let's be fair about this. See, this isn't merely a case of of their overinflated, which they were, egos getting in the way, disgusted that this Jesus, who is clearly unique as they've been seeing themselves, is basically treating these dregs of society as equals by socializing with them. But it is that if he were as special as everyone seems to think he is, he would know that he's defiling himself by eating with such low-life individuals. It's the exact same issue that the Gospel writer Luke records in chapter 7 of his Gospel when Jesus ends up being the guest at the house of, not a tax collector this time, but at the house of a Pharisee. And there's the woman with the alabaster jar and she breaks it to anoint Jesus' feet and all with the expensive perfume. And the Pharisees' logical conclusion to this incident that Luke records is found in chapter 7, verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he'd know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him, that she is a sinner. Here in Mark, Jesus is at dinner at Levi's house, or if you wish to contextualize it, Lois Lerner's house. Okay, she's the, yeah, the very controversial head of the Internal Revenue Service, okay, who mysteriously lost all kinds of incriminating emails, although they keep popping up here and there. Now, 
the exchange there and the contextualization is not a political comment. It's just the reality both in, in Jesus' day as in our day today. You see, tax collectors, and this is probably why, I'm not certain of this, probably why Mark distinguishes the tax collectors from sinners, both ne'er-do-wells, okay, both despicable individuals, but why didn't he just say sinners? But he says, no, tax collectors and sinners, because tax collectors were even sort of in a category all by themselves as being nasty, despicable people. No, they really were, because here's why. First of all, to, to become a tax collector, you basically had to sell your soul to Rome, to the Roman government. So they were strike number one. You were a traitor to your own people. But even worse than that was Rome said, Here's the dollar figure, if you want, denarius figure that we want for you to collect in taxes. Whatever you are able to collect through whatever means you are able to resort to is yours to keep. So what do you suppose they did? They were not friendly people, nor were they esteemed in society. Oh, and Jesus, he's eating with tax collectors and with sinners. Now, because I try to teach you how to fish so that you can feed yourself rather than depend on me, and if you know about my fishing exploits, many years ago Barbara and I decided not to call it going fishing but going polling. So, yeah, just a word to the wise. This is only a a figure of speech or an illustration. It's not to be taken literal. I'm not going to teach you how to fish. In fact, one morning with Andy Collar, those of you who know Andy, honest goodness truth, He took me in the Kennebec in a kayak. I caught more fish in about three and a half hours than I cumulatively have caught, I kid you not, in my lifetime. And I used to be an avid fly fisherman, so I'm not exaggerating. Anyway, you know, saying better to teach a man to fish and, and feed him for a lifetime than to give him a fish and feed him for a day, right? Okay. Anyway, wow, that was a rant that was totally worthless. So in the spirit of, what was I talking about? Teaching you how to fish, teaching you how to read the scriptures, how to rightly divide the word of truth. I knew there was a point in there somewhere. Let's note that this kind of passage is too often preached by simply stating the obvious as the central point of the passage. Namely, I mean, here you got Jesus. He's eating with all these nasty, despicable lowlifes and everything else. That Jesus loves everyone. And that's the teaching and the meaning of the passage. Well, it's a nice sentiment, and it certainly is a true one. But that is not the central teaching of this passage. The scribes, again, they were the the, the pharisaical know-it-alls. I mean, the Pharisees were a sect of, of Jews that knew the law inside and out and prided themselves on their adherence to ritual observances and being strict and trying to, you know, to, to, uh, gain a righteousness of their own and all of that because of their theology that they've known for a millennia, are blinded to seeing the trees for the forest. But the real point of this passage is coming next. Since the Pharisees are here and they are as usual, not intentionally on their part, but as usual they're setting themselves up for divine ridicule, and so Jesus is going to take the opportunity to zing them which he does in verse 17. And hearing this, remember, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus said to them, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, 
But those who are sick, I didn't come to call the righteous, as you scribes obviously are, but I came to call the sinners. And it's somewhat interesting to me that no response from the scribes is recorded by Mark, and it's not, there's nothing recorded by Luke either, who does uh, go over this same, uh, some of these same things, underscoring my opinion that this isn't about the hypocritical scribes. This isn't about Jesus even trying to get through to the scribes or break through their hardness. Instead, we often see Jesus zinging the Pharisees publicly whenever he gets the chance because he knows their hearts. Jesus knows their minds. And that they are not there because they are interested in truth, as we saw in the last encounter that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. But in answering the Pharisees and the scribes with sarcastic and even barbed remarks, he does so hoping to get through, not to them, but to the bystanders whose ears and hearts are open. And by the way, just as a little side benefit here, no extra charge for this, this isn't necessarily an imprudent pattern to keep in mind when speaking in a public forum on manners that are important to God. What do I mean by that? Oh, so many different illustrations I could choose from. When we were trying to buy this building, and the city of Waterville was, the city council was blatantly against our buying it because of the loss of tax revenue, we went and had to go through public hearings and all, and uh, at the the uh, piece de resistance of the public hearings, I stood before the city council not realizing that Central Maine Motors right next door had hired an attorney to also come and testify against us from buying the property. Well, why do you suppose they were against us buying the property? Yeah, they wanted it, and we beat them to the punch. But at any rate, so this lawyer, who's somewhat infamous in town in the day, he stands there, and of course, lawyers, not all lawyers, but, you know, they have, a, they have a thing about, you know, showboating when they get the limelight and everything else and showing us how bright and brilliant they are and all that. He starts to give this speech about why a church shouldn't be allowed to buy this building and goes on to start basically delineating what the mission of the church is in the world today. And I'm sitting there in my seat going, wow, this is almost funny. This guy is up there telling us, well, no, here's what the church should be doing, and this is where you should be to do those sorts of things and blah, blah, blah. So I'm sitting there praying and going, okay, Lord, how do I respond? There may be people who disagree with my tact, but... Here we are. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I was, I started my comments, which were prepared ahead of time, though, by saying, by thanking the attorney by name for elucidating for the church, which has been in existence now for 2,000 years, with God having given us his mission in this book here. Thank you so much for telling us what the mission of the church is today. And that was pretty much the way I said it. <laughs> there were probably people there from the church going, oh. 
But here we are. At any rate, the point is when I was writing for the newspapers and when I was on Maine in the morning and I would have to field call-ins from people talking about the issues of the day, yes, it was my general attack to pointedly go against, sometimes with biting sarcasm, against the, uh, the spirit of the age. And I would have some well-meaning Christians come to me occasionally over the years and say, you know, maybe you would make more progress with these people if you just took a different tack, meaning if you were more congenial and you were a little more gracious in your replies and all. And you know what? That, God wires us together in different ways, and I understand that. But my stock reply to them, and this was the absolute truth, was I'm not trying to convince those people at all because their hearts and their minds are solidly locked into their view and rational argumentation, which usually they've already demonstrated, is out the window. So I said, so when I answer in the way that I do, it's not hoping to convert them. It is hoping to convert those people who are on the fence or those people who when they hear one person speak, they go, wow, yeah, okay, that makes a lot of sense. And then you come in though, and with a rebuttal and they go, oh, well, yeah, no, okay, that makes even more sense than that makes sense. And now you start getting people who, again, have a mind and a heart that's somewhat open, actually trying to wade through issues and trying to come out on a reasonable, truthful end of things. Make sense? So Jesus wasn't trying to reach the scribes. I mean, you look at the, the interchanges that take place with, between Jesus and John the Baptist. you kidding me? Remember when the scribes were coming down with the flocks of the crowds to be baptized? What did John say? Ha! <laughs> Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> oh, yeah. You brood of vipers. You whitewashed sepulchers. Oh, on the outside you look all sparkly and clean. And on the inside you're full of dead men's bones and rottenness. Queen of putrescence. Sorry. <laughs> A little lapse there into the Princess Bride. Sorry. Anyway, that's what... I, woo! Okay. <sighs> Breathe deep. Go back to your notes, preacher. Solomon wrote, undergirding much better and much more succinctly than I'm trying to say. He says in Proverbs 26.5, Answer a fool as his folly deserves that he be not wise in his own eyes. And I would say, even better in our day, that, it, that, that uh, he be not wise in the eyes of someone who doesn't know any better and is looking for real answers. Well, Mark changes the scenes again in verse 18. Again, it was Mark habit, Mark's habit without segue. Remember I said earlier that the point of these several vignettes Mark outlines are to highlight a much greater point than what is obvious. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. This is the next passage. And they came and they said to Jesus, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now this question is posed, again, by both John's disciples and the Pharisees. Both were living in the Old Testament system of worship and ritual. Right? We're talking about just the very beginning, if you will, 
Even the, the language here becomes a little awkward. But remember that the transition from Judaism, the religion of Old Testament, to New Testament Christianity is a continuum. Taken on balance, Judaism and Christianity were not two distinct religions. Judaism was the precursor of Christianity. Judaism was the introduction for the victory and the joy which Christ brought to the world, fulfilling Judaism. Jesus answers the latest question posed to him. Why do John's peeps fast and yours don't? Verse 18, Jesus says, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now, Jesus' answer here is quite perplexing. If you read it without benefit of the New Testament, we're talking about these folks. We're not talking about us. They didn't have the New Testament yet. For these folks, Jesus' answer was, was basically without context, unless they were really well-schooled in the Old Testament revelations about the Messiah and understood them. They certainly understood Jesus' comment about not fasting, a sign of mourning, and a sign of sadness, they could, they could, okay, they can get that, that, yeah, that really doesn't have its place in the celebration of a wedding. So Jesus' answer, though, to a fairly simple question is loaded, theologically speaking, stating things that are not at all obvious about who he is and why he came to these folks. Oh, it's obvious to us now, again, because we have the advantage of the whole counsel of God's word, but they didn't. And as Mark moves to verses 21 and 22, the narrative changes. And again, in one of Mark's flash vignettes, the narrative changes from the personal now to the theological. Jesus, perceiving their cluelessness, tells a parable that's meant to explain this coming change from the Old Testament forms that they were familiar with to the New Testament fulfillment of those norms. And so Jesus essentially begins reinterpreting, or probably a better way of putting that, is clarifying the burdensome religion of the Old Testament with a foreshadowing of the New Testament liberty that Jesus came to usher in. But the way Mark tells it, there was nothing between these two short soliloquies of verses 21 and 22. And coincidentally, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record these same little parables in precisely the same way. Verse 21, the parable. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst. The skins and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Now, if the Pharisees really understood what Jesus was saying here, they would have been clamoring for Jesus' head right then and there. Because Jesus is basically announcing what I've alluded to already, and that is that the Old Testament system of worship and there the Pharisees' personal relationship to Jehovah was exactly that. It was old, meaning 
Now we're moving on. Not now we're moving on to something different, although that's what his critics thought he was saying, and that's eventually what would lead to the Jewish leaders demanding his execution. But Jesus wasn't throwing out the old. He was the fulfillment, everything the old was pointing to all along. So let me go back to something I said at the outset this morning. Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, promised from the book of Genesis forward. He is the one of whom the Bible is written, and all things in the Bible are about him and are meant to explain him. Keep that etched in your mind, especially as you're on your daily trek through the Word, hopefully annually through the Bible. Jesus wasn't throwing out the old. He was completing everything the old was pointing to all along, which is the good news of the coming one who would satisfy God once and for all time. Of course, the Pharisees didn't get it. And today, even many Christians don't get it. And I mean, they don't get it at this soul-deep, life-changing level of freedom that the gospel is supposed to bring and should bring. The apparent issue in the passage now at hand, which really isn't the issue at all, it's only an illustration, is that the change concerning the purpose of the hallowed observance of another hallowed Jewish law, the Sabbath. So Mark Guinea's just going to keep pounding on this same point. Superficially, the Sabbath was designed by God for what? superficially as an act of mercy for the sake of the physical, mental, and emotional health of man. Man needs a day of rest from the understood norm of six days of labor. And no other book in the New Testament explains Old Testament rituals and observances and its sacrifices of Judaism like the book of Hebrews, which is why the book of Hebrews is there. And in the fourth chapter of Hebrews. The Sabbath is shown in its New Testament fulfillment of the Old Testament shadow, to use the language of Hebrews chapter 10, where it says that the law was but a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things. As the writer of Hebrews talks about the Sabbath, The grander purpose of it was not merely or even paramountly about physical health, although that is still a valid principle today. But the writer in Hebrews chapter 4 explains that the Sabbath rest was a portent of the ultimate and the only capital R, capital E, capital S, capital T for mankind from wrestling with, from struggling with, and exhausting one's self, trying to measure up to the standard of God's holiness, which they could never do, no matter how many sacrifices they offered in the Old Testament. 
the ultimate rest, physical, emotional, and spiritual rest, is only available when a person enters into the Sabbath rest, which is only possible through the Savior Jesus, who completed all the work for mankind to be acceptable to God the Father. This is why Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. Now, am I asegeting the text from chapter 4 of Hebrews? Meaning, am I forcing meaning into the text to prove my point that isn't there? Well, let's see. Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, what do you do when you come to a therefore? What's the principle? Whenever you come to a therefore in the Scriptures, you've got to ask yourself what the therefore is there for. Get ready, because there's a slew of them in this passage. Therefore, beginning chapter 4, goes back to chapters 1, 2, and 3. And what are chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Hebrews all about? It is all about, and in fact the book of Hebrews is about, the sole, absolute, unqualified superiority of Jesus above every ritual, above angels, above any kind of system of law, of ritual, of worship, or anything else. There is no one, nothing superior to him. He outranks them all. Now, verse chapter 4, in light of that, let us fear, listen to the language here carefully, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, so what are we talking about here? We're talking about salvation. That's what the text is saying. I'm not putting that in there. It's in there. You'll see. It's clear. Let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Who is this being written to? It's being written to the Hebrew Christians of the day, the Jewish Christians of the day. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they, they are the unbelievers, as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them. Why? Because it was not united by faith in those who heard. They heard the good news and they said, no, we don't want any part of it. They saw the good news. They were seeing and experiencing the good news in Mark. And they said, no. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. I did not capitalize those. That is the way they appear in the text. Therefore, everything that we just said, since it remains for some to enter that rest, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he fixes, he again fixes a certain day. What day? Tomorrow? No! <laughs> Today, saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said before. Wait a minute, go back and say that again. He fixes a certain day today, saying through David. David? We're talking about hundreds of years back into the Old Testament now. But he's saying, no, they heard the good news through David. Saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua, who's Joshua? Joshua lived a thousand years ago in the Old Testament. The Old Testament. So if Joshua had given them rest, capital R, E-S-T, Joshua would not have spoken of another day after that. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, 
Let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, because of that, let us draw near with a knee-shaking, rabbit's foot rub statue-holding, worshiping, praying, hopefulness. No. Let us draw near with unmitigated confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and we may find grace to help in the time of need. Boom and ka-boom. <laughs> the scribes and the Pharisees, for them the Sabbath was merely a hoop of religious duty. Just another one among many that they had to jump through to score points of favor with a God they hardly knew. And Mark keeps pressing the point. Verse 23, and it happened that Jesus was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Oh, this doesn't start well. And his disciples began making their way along, picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now you understand, again, the Old Testament version of the Sabbath was you were not to do any work on the Sabbath. And of course the Pharisees took what was there, what God actually said and intended, and they always took it and added all kinds of more stuff to it. To the extent that in the culture of Jesus' day, if you were out there, remember they didn't have pavement and everything else, if you were out there and you went, bring up a loogie, whatever, and you spit on the ground, the culture of the day required that you take your foot and you scrape some of the dirt and you cover up your spittle on the ground. But if you were a good and faithful Jew, a Pharisee, and a Pharisee saw you doing that, you would be brought up basically what we would call on charges because that constituted tilling the land, which was work, which was in violation of the Sabbath rest. That's only one example of many. Standing in front of the dinner guests and the Pharisees and the scribes, and they're all in there. Standing before them is the solution to their existence. The answer of answers, and all they can do is crab about a perceived violation of some old religious law which they didn't even understand correctly in the first place. The answer of answers is in their midst and they were missing him for a thousand different reasons which people still do today when jesus saw the disciples out in their boats casting their nets he said come and follow me and i will make you fishers of men when he saw levi working for the irs he said come drop what you're doing and follow me to end where i began now i doubt that the late mr Jobs got his idea for recruiting John Scully from Jesus. But ever since that encounter with fishermen, 
And ever since Jesus challenged to the tax collector and to garbage men ever since and to homemakers and to carpenters and to doctors and to scientists and to cab drivers and to you fill in the blank, Jesus has been beckoning all who would pay him attention to come and follow him and he would use them to change the world. Steve Jobs' vision For Mr. Scully pertained only to this world and only for what will be a relatively very short time. When Jesus says, come and follow me, he promises that you won't merely change this world for this world's passing away. You follow Jesus and he will use you to impact eternity.